This is going to be such an exciting day. I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. I get emails from people saying, when I give a book recommendation, and don't forget that book, and don't forget this book, and you forgot about that. Oh, boy. I could just do a whole show recommending books. So I do the best I can. Welcome back to Hour 3 of the Patrick Madrid Show, where you are the center of attention, and you can be part of the program by calling 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149, sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Real quick, since we talked a little bit about in vitro fertilization, I thought I'd give you a few other salient points regarding embryo adoption. And what do you do when you've got embryos that are conceived through in vitro fertilization and either the mother no longer wants them, doesn't want any more of them, what, what happens to them? If she doesn't want any more of them, what's the other option? Well, they either stay on ice indefinitely or they are killed washed down the drain, tossed out into the garbage dump. And that's that's the reality of it. So from an article by, what is her name? This is an article by, had her name right here. Oh, Loretta Brown. So a few of the details surrounding this. In 1996, Pope John Paul II made an appeal to the conscience of the world's scientific authorities, and in particular to doctors, and this is him speaking, that the production of human embryos be halted, taking into account that there seems to be, notice that word seems, there seems to be no moral illicit solution regarding the human destiny of the thousands and thousands of frozen embryos who are and remain the subjects of essential rights and should therefore be protected by law as human persons, which is what effectively, I should say, the Supreme Court in the great state of Alabama just did last week. They recognized them as human persons. And they used the, the word children, and that's in essence what they are. In the 2008 document Dignitatis, Dignitatis Personae, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith addressed the question of what to do with the existing frozen embryos, rejecting, quote, proposals to use the embryos for research or for the treatment of disease because they treat the embryos as mere biological material and result in their destruction. They also rejected the proposal that, quote, these embryos be put to use, be put to the disposal, rather, or at the disposal of infertile couples. This was rejected because the practice, quote, would also lead to other problems of a medical, psychological, and legal nature. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith wrote in 1987 a document called Donum Vitae, the Gift of Life, that even if an e, rather even an IVF and embryo transfer procedure that is free from any compromise with the abortive practice of destroying embryos and with masturbation remains a technique which is morally illicit because it deprives human procreation of the dignity which is proper and connatural to it. Addressing the idea of quote-unquote prenatal adoption in order to save the embryos left frozen in IVF clinics, Dignitatis Personae called the proposal, quote, praiseworthy with regard to the intention of respecting and defending human life, but concluded that it presents, however, various problems. And this is where I was referring to earlier in the program today, that although 
it seems to me the great weight of what the church has says about this is in the negative regarding the possibility of a morally permissible embryo adoption. <clears throat> it doesn't seem to close the door entirely on this. So a few things. Um, Dr. Kevin Donovan, a bioethicist and former director of the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at Georgetown University Medical School, said that regarding the discussion of the fate of frozen embryos, that the dilemma is, um, quote, a wrong has occurred in bringing them to life, and it would require another moral wrong to put them in a situation where their life could be continued safely. In light of this, you have to say, which is the greater wrong here? to leave these embryos perpetually frozen or to proceed, proceed with implantation, which itself is not the proper pathway of procreation. Now, the reason for that is because one, the perhaps the single moral problem here of embryo adoption is that it requires the, that the wife in adopting, in the adopting couple, receive into her womb an embryonic child who was not conceived through her bodily union with her husband. And this, of course, goes back to the question of what is the morally permissible way to conceive children? Well, it's that way, through the intimacy of marriage. And so in the case of embryo adoption, the wife would be receiving into her own womb the embryo, the child, whom she did not conceive in this way with her husband. It would be presumably either her husband and she conceiving this child through IVF, but this is not really adoption because if it were her embryonic child, she would not be adopting the child. She would be receiving the child into her body for gestation. This is referring to another couple. So it's not her child biologically, nor is it a child that she conceived with her husband. It's with another man. Not that she conceived the child with the other man, but you see that the issue here is she would now be receiving into her body as a mother the conception of another couple. It gets really weird, doesn't it? So this is where there seems to be a kind of uh, maybe sliver of possibility that there could be maybe a definitive statement on the part of the church at some point. But in the meantime, though, the best way to deal with this issue is don't do IVF. Don't do it. You may be tempted to do it. Maybe you got some erroneous advice from somebody, maybe even a priest, who said, yeah, it's okay, go ahead and do that. The church says, no, don't do that. And we'll see what as time, happens as time goes by. But... Um, that's something to keep in mind, especially if you know somebody who's been contemplating this issue. Uh, let's go to Julia now in uh, Florida. Good morning, Julia. Hi, good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Um, so just <laughs> the question that I have for you is related to my father. My father um, is about, uh, he just turned 71. And <clears throat> I know just based on conversations with him, and other family members that his mother used to practice Santeria. Um, and she was very much into that world. And of course him growing up, he probably uh, did a little bit of it too. Um, the other piece of it is, is that his father was a Rosicrucianist, I'm being told. And um, 
he probably was involved in that world as well. Now, this was before um, he converted to Catholicism. Once he met my mother and my my, my grandma, who was his mother-in-law, um, he converted to Catholicism. I don't know to what extent. Obviously, I don't know what, what he has confessed. Um, but my, my dad is not someone who ever takes... I have never seen him take communion. I'm 38 years old. Okay. And this is something that I've spoken to him about multiple times. And I'm like, Dad, you know, you need to take communion. You need the Eucharist. And he just keeps telling, he tells me all the time that he's just not worthy to. So he has like a deep reverence um, of the Eucharist and he just doesn't think that he can take it. So then that's one thing. And then the other piece of it is that I know that there is such a thing as generational curses. It's in the Bible. Um, and, you know, I, the reason I'm asking about the whole thing with the with the Rosicrucianists is because I, I don't know much about it, but I think it's like pretty similar to the to the Freemasons, if I'm not mistaken, like mm-hmm. kind of like yeah. that. Like, mm-hmm. so I don't know how to broach this subject with him. Um, it's a very sensitive subject, and I know you like to recommend books, but he's not a reader. Okay, well, let's take a look at a couple things. Number one, is your father in good health, or is he declining in health? So he actually survived a uh, ruptured aortic aneurysm that in, you know, only two out of 10 people survive. Um, he's done okay. He's recovered really well from it. But I mean, I, I just don't know how long he's here for. Yeah, I, fair enough. And I'm glad to hear that. But what I mean is, is he, is his health precarious, like he could die at any minute? Or is he, is he doing more or less okay, but he's getting up in years? Um, he's doing more or less okay, I would say, I think is a fair assessment. Okay. And the reason I asked that question is because, of course, we don't know when life will end. It could end at any time, you know, abruptly, you know, as you said, that, that aortic condition usually kills people on the spot. So he's, um, he's an example of the exception to that rule. So he should not receive communion. Second chance. And, and he just like has not really done much with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a shame, but maybe you know maybe he will come around. We'll pray for that. But to your first point about receiving communion, he's right to say he's not worthy to receive communion because apparently he's not sorry for the sins he's committed, or if he is sorry, he hasn't gone to confession. Presumably, has he gone to confession that you know of? I mean, he has done spiritual retreats, and part of the spiritual ret- retreat I know is to do confession and celebrate a mass and take the Eucharist. But of course, these are like private moments in his life. Um, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, like for sure, like yeah. I've never like seen him like say like, Hey, I'm going to go to confession right now. You know? Right. Yeah. I, I follow what you're saying. So the, the, here's the thing I would promote or I would propose. Number one, he, in order to be able to receive confession, I'm sorry, to receive Holy Communion, in a worthy manner, he needs to go to confession and confess fully all those sins. What was the kind of sin? How many times it happened? What were the circumstances? Those things. But in order to do that, he has to be truly sorry for his sins. So it's not enough to say, I'm not worthy. And you could say, well, yeah, you're not worthy. None of us is truly worthy. But if you want to be saved, if you want the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, you have to repent. You can't be saved without repenting. 
So that that seems to me, based on what you're saying, to, to be the hurdle here. So you could ask him, Dad, you know, I love you, and I want you to be happy. I want you to be in heaven. I want you to be free from whatever may be weighing you down. So forgive me for asking a personal question, but have you gone to sacramental confession and confessed all of these sins, including the dabbling in Santeria and whatever other things you may have done? Have you ever gone to confession to get right with God? And he may get defensive, he may not tell you, or he might tell you. Now, even if he doesn't tell you, that question is now in his own mind. He's thinking to himself, you know, I never went to confession, or it's been a long time, or whatever it may be. But I, I think you have standing and you have a reason to ask him this question and say, I'm only asking you because I love you, and I would hate to think that you would die in the state of mortal sin and go to hell because you didn't repent of your sins, like we all have to do. And Jesus said, he said, talking about an example where I think it was 18 Galilean men were crushed in the collapse of a tower, and Jesus, in talking to his followers who were remarking about this incident, this tower fell and these guys died, and Jesus said, in essence, do you think they're any different from you? He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And he didn't mean that they would die in the collapse of a building. He meant that they would die the eternal death of being separated by God, separated from God forever by being in hell. So he emphasizes that point twice. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Who wants to hear that? I don't really like hearing that, but it's true. It's kind of like the physician saying, if you don't take this medicine or have this procedure done, you will die of this illness that you've got. We can fix it. But if you don't do what's necessary, you will die. Nobody wants to hear that either. So maybe in your conversations with your father, you can gently and lovingly talk about these issues, pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet with him, Mm -hmm. get a copy of that, and say, hey, Dad, you know, let's pray together. And he may say, I don't don't want to pray that. Okay, well, I'll just sit here in the same room with you, and I'll pray it. You can join in if you want to. Our Lord said that there would be great graces of conversion, especially among those who are near death by praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. You can do that. Um, yeah, if you can get him to pray before. it. Yes, so much the better if you can get him to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet with you. That'd be a great thing. I do believe strongly in the power of this little book called The Dogma of Hell, and uh-huh. that's something you could give him without comment even. You could just say, I found this book interesting. I thought you might like to read it. That'll get the wheels turning. Yeah. But no, that's a good suggestion. I, I have heard in the past when you've spoken to other people who have been part of the Freemasons, you mentioned something. It was like an exorcism prayer that like mm-hmm. a lay priest can do, but it, it's not like a, you know. Yeah, there is no such thing as a lay priest. But um, if you're asking about like prayers of deliverance, there are things that the church has in its ritual of, of deliverance prayers that priests can pray for somebody. And that would be a very good thing to do. Maybe you're thinking about things a lay person can do. A lay person cannot perform an exorcism or do the things that a priest can do in that regard. But lay people like you and me, we can pray prayers of deliverance, the prayers of the prayer of Saint Michael the Archangel. Um, we have the right and even the duty to pray prayers of deliverance like that. But it, I, I think it would be a fine thing if your father were to be willing to let a Catholic priest come over and pray some of these prayers of deliverance, if the priest thinks it might need 
maybe a minor exorcism. It doesn't mean your father's possessed by the devil, but there could be diabolical interference and residue from his former association with with Santeria and with Rosicrucianism. I think that would be a very good thing to do. And all of these things would be hopefully opening up his heart so that he'd be willing to get right with God, go to confession, start receiving the Holy Eucharist. And you're a good daughter, Julia, for seeking after your father's well-being this way. God bless you and him. I'll be right back. Join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Czestochowa, and the Infant Child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at RelevantRadio.com slash Poland. That's RelevantRadio.com slash Poland. Keeping it relevant. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Join the conversation at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on now on Relevant Radio. Well, Cyrus, you know how people always say that Rob Lowe and I have so much in common. You've heard that a lot. Oh, yes. People always say that Rob Lowe and Patrick Madrid have so much in common. Usually when Rob Lowe's name comes up, my name often follows. I don't know why. I think people get you guys mixed up all the time. Yeah, I've gone through that. Yeah. Um, You know, you got to live with things. So I got this. What are you talking about? (laughs) Well, just take a look at the guy. Why wouldn't people? Yeah, get I just confused? did. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't they get us confused? Me and Rob Lowe. Uh, so anyway, anywho, New York Post, I thought you might enjoy this. Uh, Rob Lowe is a fan of two of my, f- I mean, all-time favorite restaurants, El Pollo Loco and In-N-Out Burger. And it's just a fun little article in the New York Post. Uh, he did an interview and he's, you know, he's in good shape, fit, trim, etc. And he admitted that he goes to these restaurants a lot. He says, I'm a creature of habit. I have meals that I cycle through that I love. I just had a tostada salad with grilled chicken today. I have that once a week for sure. El Pollo Loco's yummy seasoned chicken with coleslaw, maybe a little side of beans. That's another one. We do have a lot in common, don't we? Uh, So he's a big El Pollo Loco guy. So am I. And he's also a big In-N-Out hamburger guy. So am I. So I guess there's yet another thing that we have in common. I just thought you'd want to know about that. Did you eat a lot of paint chips when you were a kid? <laughs> <laughs> That's Tommy Boy, right? Hey, nice job. Yeah. Because I, I think I heard uh, David Spade laugh in the background. Or oh, maybe that was Tommy Chris, Boy. that was Farley laughing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Let's go to Rose in New Jersey. Good, mo- good morning, Rose. Good morning, Patrick. Um, I have a question um, that I've had a long time, and different people give me different uh, answers. Mm-hmm. I uh, want my desperately want my children to return to the church, and uh, for two of my children, two boys, I've asked them as a gift for Mother's Day or whatever it is, whatever holiday, if they would join me for Mass. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
the one said at one point he doesn't believe in God, and the other son makes fun of all of this and says it's a bunch of nonsense and so on. And uh, listening to you, you know, am I causing them more sin by bringing them to church and then going to communion? I'm at, I asked them beforehand, I said, don't forget to say not to contrition or something. And then they look at me like I have three heads. So, so these adult children harming them. These adult children they're are adults. away. From, they're not practicing the faith, right? They're not going to mass regularly, right. if at all. They haven't gone to confession lately. Okay. So, first of all, I'd like to affirm your desire to see them come back to the faith, come back to God, re-embrace their faith in Jesus, etc. And it's good that you're asking them to come back to Mass. It's good. That's really good. I would, however, say not to encourage them to receive communion because that would be incurring another sin for them, which would be the sin of... of um, receiving Holy Communion while in the state of serious sin, which they're in, of course. So that would be the sin of sacrilege. Now, I don't want you to think that you are now, you're guilty of this sin. It was your honest effort to try to get them to come back to the practice of their faith. The sin would be theirs for receiving communion in a sacrilegious way. But now that you know my advice would be keep doing what you're doing, but to tell them, now remember, don't receive communion because you're not ready to receive Jesus. You haven't gone to confession. And tell them that. And and yet still invite them to come to Mass with you and pray for their return. You know what I think might be helpful, Rose? I've, I've found that in Acts chapter 8, there's a story that's really pertinent to your situation. And this has to do with God sending Philip presumably Philip the Apostle. Some say it was Philip, one of the early deacons, but I think it was probably Philip the Apostle. God sent him miraculously out into the desert, into Gaza, of all places, to meet up with an Ethiopian eunuch who was in his chariot riding around, and he was reading a scroll of Isaiah that happened to be about Jesus, and he didn't understand it. So God sent Philip. So he's like suddenly shows up there miraculously and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So Philip gets up into the chariot and he explains this passage of Isaiah, how it refers to Jesus and who Jesus is and Jesus died on the cross and Jesus is Lord, etc. And the man has a conversion experience and he's baptized on the spot. And then, as quickly as God sent Philip to help this man out, we're told that as soon as he was done there, then the Spirit of the Lord caught him up and sent him somewhere else. Now, the reason I dwell on this passage with you, Rose, it's the second half of Acts chapter 8, is because this is your secret weapon that your children will have no defense against, and that is that you pray to God every day that he will send a Philip into the lives of those children of yours. Somebody, if they won't listen to you, somebody that whom they will listen to. And the Philip can be a man or a woman, could be several Philips, could be many Philips. But you as, as mom, you have a special standing, a special power 
in your relationship with your children before God, and you can invoke these blessings into the lives of your children in the form of him sending these Phillips into the lives of your kids. And then just that be patient. That is a great idea. That is yeah. a great idea. I, um, uh, Unfortunately, I have had them at church and told them not to go to communion, and they do not listen. Well, that's on them. And there's no sin that a human being can commit that's too great for God's grace and mercy to restore and to repair. So in due time, let's hope and pray that those sins are are restored and repaired, that they're forgiven for that. In the meantime, though, you've done your duty, and you're doing your duty, and you're inviting them to come back. They're scoffing. Okay, well, eventually they won't be scoffing. Hopefully not before it's too late. But in the meantime, that would be my heartfelt suggestion. Every day, pray that God would send a Philip into the lives of your children. And I believe he will. I know he will. He will honor your prayer as mother for your children. May I ask you one more thing or mention one more thing? Okay. I uh, am looking for it. I can't. Oh, here it is. Um, my one, the one son younger uh has a thought disorder it's called schiz- schizoreflective okay and uh when he talks about god and all this he sounds it sounds like the devil i mean the way he talks it's awful so that sounds to me and i don't have any credentials or or any competence in that field that sounds like a psychiatric issue, and I'm not capable of giving you advice in that regard. So if you want something that is clinical in nature and somebody who has the ability to tell you what to do in a case like that, talk to, if you can, talk to a psychiatrist or a psychologist would be another <clears throat> avenue, but I think a psychiatrist more. That's just an area that I don't have any competence in, Rose. So pray for those Phillips to go into the lives of your children. And I hope that's helpful to you, Rose. Thank you, and God bless you. Let's go to Julie now in Portland, Maine. Hi, Julie. Hi, Patrick. Um, earlier you were talking with a gentleman about um, going to confession over and over again for the same yeah. sin. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, when it when a true biologically-based addiction is at play, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a nurse, I see alcohol addiction, drug addiction, food addiction, we see all sorts of addiction. Right. Um, and someone is is going to confession on a regular basis, um, and don't they don't mean for it to be a game, but they're they're just struggling with this biological addiction issue. Like, what are your thoughts on you know frequency of confession and and trying um, when there's yeah. something like that at play? And then my other question was: um, let's, let's pause there first, though, so that I can okay. keep this straight in my head. <laughs> Um, okay, sure. Yeah, so the, the rule of thumb, as I understand it, would be this, that if somebody's honestly struggling against the sin and there is a kind of compulsion because of the amount of repetition and, you know, wearing grooves into the brain and things that happen mm-hmm. biologically and neurologically to the body, those things do happen. We know that they they contribute to this. And, of course, that could, for any given act, it could diminish that person's culpability. It's still a serious sin. And if we're, think, if we're talking about, for example, the sin that that gentleman who called in earlier today seemed to have been speaking about, 
it does there are indeed physiological reinforcements that take place and and um, even psychological reinforcements that take place it doesn't exonerate the person from committing the sin it could it could diminish to some extent the culpability that the person has but the rule of thumb I was leading up to there is go to confession as often as you need to so when you mm-hmm. fall into mm-hmm. a serious sin go to confession but the key is that the person is honest and says I really want to overcome this I don't want to keep going back into this over and over and over again just spinning my wheels never moving forward the grace of the sacrament will help, but it, it won't be able to help unless the person has made a real commitment. I am not going to do this. Now, if I fall back into it because I'm weak, okay, God will pick me up and restore me. But there has to be an act of the will that strives against the sin, without which it will just be an unending spinning of wheels. And no matter how often you go to conf- confession, you're always stuck in that same rut. I think that's the key to getting traction to get out of it, you know. So like a true sadness that you keep, you know, performing this, you know, engaging Mm -hmm. in the sin, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're truly sorry about it. You're truly sad about it, but you're struggling with like a biologically based addiction perhaps when it becomes twofold, right? Go get treatment for that. And yeah, God. Yeah. That that would be one way to handle it. Certainly if there's a treatment available for it, some people are sad about the sin, but they're not galvanized to attack it. And it's not enough to be sad about the sin or, oh, this makes me feel terrible, or I, I wish I weren't doing this. The, the added step is, okay, it makes me sad. I'm going to cooperate with God's grace, and I'm going to be ruthless in attacking this sin. When okay. that engages, usually the person gets free of it pretty quickly. Okay, thank you. That was very helpful. Um, my other question was, I have a high school-aged son. He's very much into theater and drama. Okay. And I just noticed that his opening night show um, for his because now he's, he's out into community theater as well, not just like at the, in his high okay. school. Opening night is Good Friday. And, you know, I'm struggling. Um with, I don't know if there's an official like prohibition or rule against attending a show or, you know, attending something like that, that where people are going to be clapping and cheering and having a good time. It just, mm-hmm. it feels even in my son, God bless him. He's even struggling a little bit with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so just how to sort of handle that given that it's good Friday. I understand. And your, your intuition is, is sound, Julie, that if we can avoid any kind of a party or festivity or something like that on Good Friday, it's better to avoid it. And it's it's the best thing to do, you know, to keep to stay in keeping with the fact that the Lord suffered and died for our salvation on that day. But the church does not have a prohibition. You can't go okay. to something fun on Good Friday. The church doesn't say that. I'd say the the, the spirit of the church's um, approach to this would be if you can avoid it, avoid it. But if you can't avoid it, you're not committing a sin thereby. So if he has no other choice but to participate in this play on Good Friday, um, as long as he's attending to the other things, the fast and abstinence, and he devotes some time to pondering the passion of Jesus and his death, I think certainly in itself that's a good base. But he wouldn't be sinning if he were to participate in the school play. Okay. 
And then uh, just three really quick things. I'll just say, um, Alicia, if she's listening, I'm still praying for her. I know a lot of people are probably. Yeah. Um, also, uh, my first husband and I, um, annulled, um, did not do IVF. We had trouble conceiving and we eventually were blessed with three beautiful children the mm. old fashioned way after five years of really, really hard heartbreak. So good for you. For people who are suffering, you know, don't do it. <laughs> don't we didn't do the IVF and I thank God right. every day that we didn't. Um and it can still happen. Miracles can happen. That's true. And my husband and I are working on getting our marriage convalidated in the church, Patrick, because of things that I heard on your show. So thank Oh, you for that's that. beautiful. I'm so happy for yeah. you. Yeah. I'm very excited about it. So I, I that was a conversation you had with a lady Maria, I think a couple weeks ago, um, um who was talking about this issue. She was very tearful on the show and I started looking into it and yes, we are, we're, we've met with our parish priest and we're going forward with it. So very exciting. God bless you, Julie, you and your husband. And you say you got the annulment, right? With the earlier Correct. marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. okay. God bless you. And uh, thank you for listening. And apparently it's bearing good fruit in your life, which is awesome. Thank you for that. I'll be right back. This hour is supported by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Join the nation's largest Catholic-oriented credit union and receive $200 when you add a direct deposit. Learn more at NotreDameFCU.com slash join. That's NotreDameFCU.com slash join. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, hey. encouragement for your day. Hey. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. All right. Whatever. 888-914-9149. How about Sam now in Vista, California? Sorry, Vista, California. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Patrick. Uh, thank you for taking the call. Happy I to wanted to share an experience in my own family on IVF. Uh, our daughter, our oldest daughter, many years ago, actually 23 years ago, uh, had been married seven years at the time. Her, her and her husband did everything they could to try to have a child. Well, when they told me that they had gone through, they're going to do IVF, and I understood the church's teaching, mm -hmm. uh, I went to um, a local priest uh, in North County, and... Uh, he told me, who was, I was very close with him, he said, Sam, he says, it is against the church's teaching. He told me that, but I'm not going to tell you that you can do it. Wait, wait, start over again. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you it is against the church's teaching? No, no. He says, he's not going to give me permission to tell my daughter that it's okay to go ahead with IVF. I see. He, but he, he said, I, I want you to pray about it. And if you get an answer and you feel it is is the between your your daughter and her husband. Anyway, as time went, and who told you this, Sam? Who who was it that said a, that? A priest. It was a priest in a in, in a church in North County. So um, he was. Let me make sure I have this. He was saying to you, as dad, he's not giving you permission to tell them that it's okay but that they should pray about it and whatever they decide is okay for them? Is that the import of what he said? 
if they felt it was morally correct. Yes, that's correct. If it was morally right. Any right. So you know that that's horrendously bad advice, right? Uh, okay. I understand that. But okay. me, what happened, they did go through it. And, had, and my daughter and her husband had a baby boy who is now 23 years old, just gradu- graduated from college last year in bioscience. I mean, these guys have a brain. But anyway, they found out through the IVF what was causing her not to have children. My daughter had very few eggs. I don't understand the entire reproductive system. But, but my, her husband, uh, uh, urine sac would not totally empty and would have bacteria. The bacteria uh, in the sperm caused, killed her eggs. They found that out through IVF. Anyway, once they, he was cleared up after they had their first child, she had two natural girls afterwards, after that. And uh, so it was a blessing for our family, even though uh, I still feel in my heart, was it correct? When I look at these children, how beautiful they are. But anyway, uh, and then my daughter passed away a few years ago from breast cancer. And I don't know, I, I think of myself, geez, could that have been part of the IVF and all that type of thing? But because um, her other siblings had children and she was without a child and, and she was feeling sad and that's why they went through with it. But needless to say, needless to say, Patrick, um, uh, when the priest said to me, he didn't say, no, don't do it. He just says, you kind of like let your conscience be your guide, you know? And yeah, I, I, I hear that. Um, that's deeply unfortunate. The priest, any priest, has the duty, the obligation to speak the truth in love. And maybe he was going overboard on the love part of it, but he wasn't speaking the truth if he said that if they pray about it and decide that it's morally permissible for them. I mean, that's called situational ethics. The church rejects that. Something that is immoral doesn't become moral for you just because you prayed about it and decide that you want to do it. So, I mean, may your daughter rest in peace. I, I hope and pray that she's happy with the Lord, but, I mean, do keep praying for her. My condolences on her loss. But the IVF itself, even though you have a beautiful child, a grandchild for you anyway, to show for it, that's great. God blesses us in ways that we don't deserve and in situations that are in themselves sinful sometimes. Rape, fornication, adultery. I mean, these are examples where the act itself is sinful, but God will still give a blessing to the couple in the midst of that difficult situation and and sinful situation. So, I want to emphasize that we don't in any way look down upon children who are conceived by IVF. We welcome them, we love them, we praise God for them, all the things that we do for any other child. But it doesn't mean that we can't at the same time say that this act that caused the conception was itself sinful. So I'm really sorry to hear that the priest gave that bad advice. Better that he should have said, if your children will listen to you, tell them why IVF is morally wrong and encourage them not to do that because they're going to regret it later. Sooner or later, they will regret it because it's a serious sin. Thanks for sharing with me, Sam. I do appreciate that. And again, my condolences with the loss of your daughter. Uh, let's, go into Car- uh, sorry, let's go to Carl in Richmond, Virginia. Good morning, Carl. Hi, Patrick. 
Thank you for taking my call. You're um, welcome. Are we on speakerphone? Because it sounds a little bit like that. Uh, yes, I'm, let me let me take take it out. That'd be great. Is that better? Yeah, I think so. Let's give it a try. Okay, check it out. So my my question is based on I've um, been uh, divorced and annulled marriage for for twenty one years, twenty two years going on. Um, and my family, um, two boys and, and a daughter, and I have now grandchildren involved on that. And my question is relating to my attempts to to have some healing given the situation and that with my former spouse and okay. in, in the case of my my oldest son has estranged him and his entire family from me over the years he had the door open and then closed it again and i don't quite understand why that happened but he's blocked me and all of that um i do focus on my my daughter and my my other son uh, um because i have some relationship with them i've been trying to um through prayer and, and um, um, to try to have some healing to all of my members of my family, because we do have, they'll always be parents to our children, and we have now grandchildren and going forward. Um, so I don't know if, what, if anything else, might be able to do other than I know praying, of course, for, for the situation. Um, uh, my my um, youngest son is in a struggling with an addiction, and he's in Ch- a Chinoco community down in Florida. And, oh, good. Uh, um, I've had an opportunity to go. So, Carl, pause for a second. I'm not really sure. Is the backdrop to your question the marriage that broke up? You and your wife broke up. Is that the backdrop here? Yeah, that's the backdrop, and trying to then and asking you what, if anything, I can do above and beyond what I'm doing. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of struggling whether or not I'm to. to, 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 to I'm not so badly that I want to. I hate to say force the situation or I'm not getting any response back to things that I've even in reaching out to my former spouse or to reaching out to my son because he doesn't respond to anything I do. He rejects things that I send to the okay. grandchildren. Let's, and let all me ask that a couple of questions, if I may. Do you mind if I ask a okay. couple? Okay. Sure. So the first one is in the, in the marriage, did either you or she get remarried or attempt to get remarried? Um, no, uh, neither of us have re- remarried. I've dated a, okay. a lot and almost got okay. remarried, and I'm dating somebody right now. But no. But you're you're you and she are both not. Re- you didn't attempt to remarry. Yeah, current okay, time, correct. Okay, so the the marriage itself, when it ended, is there any way to say whose fault it was for it ending? I want to say it was a joint thing, but there was. Um, um, some uh, the emotional abuse, and there was some um, physical altercations that occurred. And um, was she hitting you, or were you hitting her? Well, I had there was a situation where I laid my hand on on her okay. um, times, and um, went through um, what I needed to do for that on the legal arena side and all of that. And um, um, I so you okay, I just I want to slow things down a little bit so I can try to track it. So you, the two of you are married. And although it, uh, it always it takes two to tango, obviously, in this case, it sounds like you were the one who ruptured the marriage by being physically abusive to her. Is that correct? To, to, yes. To, okay. um, and she said, that's enough. I'm done. Move out. Something like that. Um, she, she did it in a secretive way. It was a total surprise. Yeah, she had it all premeditated, everything. She had ousted me, and, and uh, basically I 
I called my home on the day it occurred and everything, my belongings were out and everything. And okay. uh, I, I guess what I'm driving at though, Carl, is you, you're the one who by your bad behavior brought that to happen. It culminated, yes. Okay. So now 20 years have gone by and you, I think you mentioned your son has turned his back on you and apparently she is not communicating with you. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And I can only imagine how in your heart you wish things weren't the way they are. I can, my heart goes out to you if you're feeling heartbroken that this marriage that could have been a happy marriage ended the way it did, or at least it got broken the way it did. And now you're living with the pain and the remorse that happened or it started happening 20 years ago, and you're now living with the results of that, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay, so now I have it clear in my mind. And what would be the 30-second version of the question that you have now? What, if anything more than prayer, can I do to um, bring about a, a healing reconciliation in, in while I'm still living on this earth? I'm 70 years old now, mm-hmm. and she's about five years younger than me, and I, I have very young grandchildren, and I have... I have a daughter also that has a granddaughter that I have a relationship with that is not married yet at this time. So okay. I'm going looking at time ahead. What can I do, if anything? I'll tell you what I think, and this is just my way of looking at it, but I think, number one, you can always pray and ask God to heal and restore this marriage. As Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So it may be, Carl, that God has a miracle in store for you, perhaps, but perhaps not. And one of the things to deal with is, as difficult as it may be, is as the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's always redemption, uh, there's always forgiveness, there's always you know the restoration that God can make and probably already has done as a work of his grace in your heart. But the wages of sin is death means that sometimes marriages die and can't be brought back to life. Sometimes careers are killed. Sometimes reputations are destroyed. Relationships with children, relationships with people you dearly love, but you can't restore it outside of a miracle of God's grace. That's what it means when he says the the wages of sin is death. It's not just death in the spiritual sense, which is the worst sense of all, but it also plays out in our relationships and in situations. Sometimes they can never be restored again. And I have no way of knowing, of course, what may or may not happen in your family, but it could be that this is never going to be fixed and that for the rest of your days, you're going to be dealing with the remorse if only I hadn't raised my hand against my wife, if only I hadn't done X, Y, or Z, but you can't change that. So going forward, as painful as it is and and may well be, pray for, my. this is just my advice since you're asking me, pray for a restoration of your marriage, ask God for a miracle, and in the meantime, do reparation and penance for your contribution to the destruction of the marriage. And, and recognize that the answer may, may be from God, no, this is not coming back. 
and the relationship with your son may not be restored. Let's hope and pray that it does, that it will be restored. And I will join you in praying for that, Carl. But to, to really face up to your role in all this means to say, Lord, thy will be done, and recognize that this in this life at least it may not be restored the way you would like it to be. But continue to pray for that and see what happens. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I will say that at this Chernokolo uh, community, um, in November, parents were invited, and she she was there, my former wife, and uh, mm-hmm. they did a lot of adoration, and uh, we had them come to each individual, and we were among them. And my son called me over. He was with his mother, and we did this, and I was praying and verbalized that, so to, for the, uh, our family could be healed or our brokenness yeah. and left it at that. And, uh, you know, um, my prayer and hope with that, there might be since then something and it may take if it happens at all. But, um, I thought that, that was something that was a step where we were physically yeah. together at the time. And it could be, it could very well be Carl. You're right about that. So, you know, be, a trust in the Lord and wait on his response. We'll see how long that takes, but you know, keep praying, keep hoping, and um, and and do reparation penance for these things. Thanks, Carl. Until tomorrow, I'll pray for you. Please pray for me. God bless you. Now.